We're going to be opening to Revelation chapter 19 this morning, Revelation 19. We took a couple of weeks off as others uh, filled the pulpit, and I was very grateful for uh, those who, who came in to support in that way. And I imagine that most of you have had the experience sometime in your life, if you haven't, you probably will as you walk with the Lord, the experience of a rescue at the final hour. In other words, you had a need that was great in your mind. And maybe you even waited a long time thinking that that need would never be met. And right as the time was running out, help arrived. Maybe it was a check in the mail that met some financial need, maybe a school bill need. Maybe it was a person who happened to come along to help you out of a dangerous situation. And it happened at the last minute, or as we might say, at the 11th hour. That's our expression. And as we reflect on those experiences as believers in Christ, we recognize the hand of God in it. God supplies what we need just when we need it, and often in a way that surprises and delights us. We shouldn't be surprised when God meets our needs, but we are often because he does things at the last minute at times. It's one of the ways God reminds us that he is caring for us. That what Paul wrote to the Philippians is true. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. But if you follow Israel's history, In the scripture, you can find story after story, can't you, of how God supplied a need at the last minute, at the 11th hour. We serve an 11th hour God. From Abraham going through all of the steps, right, to sacrifice his son in Genesis 22. We read that as they make the journey to the mountain, as they carry the wood and the fire up the slope, and as Abraham binds his son on the altar, how God is taking him every step of the way, but not until he reaches out to draw the knife does the angel of the Lord say, Stop! Don't kill him! God's provided a ram. God moved at the 11th hour when he took his people out of Egypt parting the waters of the Red Sea just in time for them to escape the mightiest army on the planet at the time, the Egyptian army. And then God demolished the army that would dare attack his people. And how many times in the Bible were God's people surrounded by a vast and terrible army, an army mightier mightier than they, determined to destroy them, and they're trapped, helpless, And some of them begin to despair. And at that moment of need, God comes to them. I'm thinking of Isaiah 36 and 37 when Sennacherib's army surrounds the city of Jerusalem and the situation is seemingly hopeless as they face the prospect of starvation or invasion and being captured and tortured. And Hezekiah the king cries out to God. And at the end of Isaiah 37, we read, And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. That's what God did at the 11th hour. The God who asks us to trust him and then he tests our faith by not rushing 
to our every situation, but by sometimes allowing us to experience the temptation of angst and fear before coming to our rescue, to cause us to cry, Lord, do you not care that we perish like the disciples before he calms the storm? And I'm telling you this to say that this is the situation we find at the end of Revelation 19. When we look at all of the scripture that has pointed us to this time in the book of Revelation, we've already seen in our study, and we don't have time to review the scriptures this morning to see this, that the dragon who is identified as Satan in Revelation and the beast who is the Antichrist and the false prophet who are ruling over the earth during this time, they have drawn all the kings of the earth and their armies to a single place in the land of Israel where they are surrounding all of the remaining believers on the face of the earth, and they are going to annihilate them once and for all. And without knowing the rest of the story, this seems like a very hopeless situation. And this movement of forces across the globe, or what's left of the globe at this point, takes place in the context of the last great judgments from God being poured out upon a world of those who cling to their sin and refuse, despite God's call, to repent, despite all of the warnings. And as the armies draw near for this last great battle known as Armageddon, with the earth reeling from the throes of judgment as God's people are about to be destroyed, the Lord Jesus Christ, seen as the rider on the white horse, breaks through the sky and comes to conquer as a divine warrior and as a divine king. This is the passage we finally come to in our study of Revelation. I want to begin reading then in chapter 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. He's a king and a warrior. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure were following him on white horses from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the return of Jesus Christ to the earth, his second coming, which I said in the previous time we looked at this particular text, that this is the climax of the age of human history. Because it is the coming which brings all of God's promises that he has given at this point together for the nation of Israel. And he finally fulfills them. What we just read about is the promise of a conquering king. A few weeks ago, we reviewed some of the Old Testament prophecies that promised this king would return and reign on David's throne. If you want to hear those messages, there's two of them that you can uh, go to Sermon Audio and find. And when we read verses 11 through 16, that's exactly what we see. We see this warrior king coming to overthrow his enemies and establish his kingdom, his throne. The images of the warrior on the white horse and, and his robe dipped in blood, his army that follows him, likely consisting of angelic uh, uh, beings and resurrected saints. That includes you and me. 
following him on white horses and the sharp sword coming out of his mouth and the image of trampling his enemies like one would trample grapes in a wine press and the liquid of the press overflowing, a horrifying image. That's him coming as a warrior. But then we see images of the king, his piercing, all-seeing, fiery eyes, his full knowledge and his rod of iron and especially his name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is coming at the climax of human history. The kingdom that he is bringing is the final end of the age in which we now live. The earth is finally going to see what a righteous kingdom looks like. Won't that be a wonderful thing? And what a lasting kingdom looks like. And what perfect judgment looks like. But this morning, before we gather around the table... And in the coming weeks, before we look at this kingdom in chapter 20, I want to focus our attention on verses 11 through 16. This is the promise not of the conquering king, but the promise of a defeated enemy. And that's what we read of in the last five verses of the chapter. First, we read of an ominous call for the birds of the air to feast upon the dead bodies of those who will be left from this slaughter. It heightens the dread that is coming on those who stand against the Lord. Verse 17, then I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Next, we see the battle lines drawn up, the opposing sides. And I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war on the one side, against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army on the other side. In other words, these kings and their armies were drawn into battle against the Lord's earthly people, but maybe they never expected the Lord, the king himself, to appear with his heavenly army. And thus the battle lines are drawn. We do not see any of the battle itself in this account. What we see are the results of the battle. That's what John emphasizes. Verse 20, and the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image as we studied that earlier in our series. Those two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. They are the first to enter the lake of fire. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Now, my overarching message is that this is the climax of the age of human history because it is the fulfillment of specific promises that God made, whereby he would bring those who hate him and his people by bringing them to judgment and establishing his righteous rule, which we will see in later texts. So what promises would those be? 
I mean, we know that a king is promised that would sit on David's throne, but where do we find Old Testament prophecy that alludes to a battle such as we have read about in this passage? I don't have time to unpack these passages very much at all, but I think it would be good for us to look at them this morning. I'm going to have them on the screen. You can turn in your Bible if you would like to, but the first one is back in Joel 3. We uh, heard this uh, from Chuck Bumgarner this morning, this passage read. And I'm not going to read all these, all the verbs of these passages, actually, all the words of them. But I, I want you to look at these passages together. We've already learned that Joel speaks of the day of the Lord. And this is the climax of the day of the Lord that we're reading about in Revelation 19. This is the great day of the Lord, the final, ultimate day of the Lord. And in that context of the day of the Lord, God says through his prophet, for behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, which means he's going to bring the kingdom, we're going to see that in chapter 20, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. We could literally interpret this, the valley of God's judgment. Jehoshaphat means God has judged. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people, my heritage, Israel. Skipping down to verse 9, proclaim this among the nations, consecrate for war, stir up the mighty men, Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Those riders on the white horses. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. It's it's a picture of, of what we've read about in Revelation, where the beast and the false prophet and Satan uh, deceive and gather all of these armies together in one place. Because God is going to judge men, uh, judge them. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread. For the wine press is full, the vats overflow, for their evil is great. The same imagery that we see in Revelation 19. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened. The stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake. What we see here is a future day of God's judgment when God will draw all of the ungodly nations into an area near Jerusalem for the purpose of destroying them with the warriors that the Lord will bring down. These are those who hate him, those who have set themselves against the Lord despite the continual calls we see in Revelation for repentance and the proclamation of the gospel. A vast number in the context of the lights in the heavens being dimmed, just like we see in Revelation. We find this same scene in the book of Zechariah. Zechariah 14 is the only text I'm going to focus on in Zechariah. What is striking about this battle is that it appears to come immediately before the promised kingdom where the Lord will reign. In Zechariah 14, it says, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. 
that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from the east to the west by a wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other southward. It's saying that when the Lord touches down, this is where he's landing. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day, there shall be no light, cold, or frost. And there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time, there shall be light. It's it's talking about the transition into the kingdom. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, and his name one. One more passage, Ezekiel chapter 39 where the nations of Gog and Magog are mentioned. And without going into detail this morning, we just don't have time for that, Gog and Magog are prophetic names in the prophecies of the Old Testament that stand for nations that will fight against Israel in the last days. So great will be the number of the fallen that the birds are invited to feast, just like we read of in Revelation 19. And it takes seven months, it says here, for the Lord's people to bury the fallen of their enemies. There are so many. He says in Ezekiel 39, And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief of prince of Meshech and and Tubal. And I will turn you about and drive you forward and bring you up from the uttermost parts of the north and lead you against the mountains of Israel. He's gathering them to their place. Yes, Satan and the beast and the false prophet send out their deception to gather them. But as we've seen again and again in Revelation, God is behind it all. Ultimately, he is gathering them. Then I will strike your bow from your left hand and will make your arrows drop out of your right hand. You shall fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your hordes and the peoples who are with you. I will give you the birds of prey of every sort. I will give you to the birds of prey of every sort and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. You shall fall in the open field, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. I will send fire on Magog and on those who dwell securely in the coastlands, and they shall know that I am the Lord. And my holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let my holy name be profaned any more. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Behold, it is coming, and it will be brought about, declares the Lord. That is the day of which I have spoken." Then those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out to make, and make fires of the weapons and burn them, shields and bucklers, bow and arrow, clubs and spear. They will make fires of them for seven years so that they will not need to take wood out of the field or cut down any of the forest, for they will make their fires of the weapons. They will seize the spoils of those who despoiled them and plunder those who plundered them, declares the Lord God. On that day, I will give to Gog a place for burial in Israel the valley of the travelers east of the sea. It will block the travelers for their Gog and all his multitude will be buried. It will be called the valley of Hammon Gog or or of of Gog uh, being vast or numerous. For several months of the house of Israel, they will be burying them in, in order to cleanse the land. All the people of the land will bury them and will bring them renown. I will, it will bring them renown on the day that I show my glory, declares the Lord. 
As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to the birds of every sort and to the beasts of the field. Assemble and come, gather from all around to the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you, a great sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel, and you shall eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, of he-goats, of bulls, all of them fat beasts of Bashan, and you shall eat fat till you are filled and drink blood till you are drunk at the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you. And you shall be filled at my table with horses and charioteers, with mighty men and all kinds of warriors, declares the Lord God. And I will set my glory among the nations, and all the nations shall see my judgment that I have executed, and my hand that I have laid on them. The house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. Now, with more time, we could sample other Old Testament prophecies. But what is striking about these is that there does not appear to be a time in Israel's history when these prophecies have ever been fulfilled in any kind of detail. But Revelation 19 appears to describe their fulfillment. Turning back to our text in that chapter, I'd like us to make a few important observations that helps us understand the seriousness of this final judgment. First of all, when the angel stands in the sun in verse 17, which simply means he is so large, he is superimposed where the sun is in the sky. And he invites the birds to gather for the great supper, the daipnon, that's the Greek word for it, the daipnon of God, the supper of God. This is not the first supper that we read of in this passage, in in Revelation 19. Remember? Revelation 19.9. Earlier, there is an invitation given for the saints of God, those who follow the Lord, to attend the marriage supper or the marriage daipnon. It's the same word. The marriage supper of the land. And here is a dreadful contrast. At the one supper, the saints with with joy and gladness, are feasting together with the Lord. But at the other supper, the enemies of God will be the feast. They will literally be eaten by the carrion birds. But this is no idle invitation to the birds of the field. It's not simply rhetorical flair. Because the passage begins with a call to the birds to feast and it ends with the result that all the birds were gorged with their flesh. The flesh of the enemies of God. This is a dreadful and final day of judgment. There's another observation. The battle lines are drawn up in verse 19 of this text. The beast, the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth and their armies on one side and the returning king of kings and lord of lords and his army of saints and angels on the other. Now, you can imagine at this point, if you were describing the scene yourself, okay, if if you were shown the vision and you were the one writing the script, you would probably narrate the battle. Isn't that how we are? I mean, mean, that's the the best part, you know, And, and it's missing here in the story. The Lord Jesus reaches the earth and begins to slay his enemies and those behind him on white horses, which I think includes us, if we know Christ, 
charge into the conflict, wielding whatever instruments of war we have been given. And we can imagine how you and I might write the script if we were producing maybe the movie version of uh, uh, Revelation chapter 19. But John never describes that scene. He only gives the results of the battle. The beast and the false prophet, the leaders of God's enemies, are captured and the rest, it says, were slain by the sword that is described earlier in the text, the sword that is seen coming from the mouth of the Lord. And that sword coming from the mouth of the Lord speaks of the fact that God is not simply killing people. He's judging them by the standard of the word of God. The fact that he never describes, John never describes the, the battle scene may mean that the battle is over very quickly. And the Lord does most of the work. While we're just sitting on our horses, you know, like the, the second string, you know, like the B team, you know, because the Lord's doing everything and, and, and we're just there to, to celebrate in the victory. But it still may be that the whole story is not told here. That we actually participate in the battle to save these people on earth who are God's people, who are following him. Because if we turn back to the Lord's promises to his conquerors in chapter 2 of Revelation, remember what he says to the church of Thyatira? I'll put the text on the screen. He said to them, the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. This image of smashing pots with a rod of iron, earthen pots, clay pots that could never stand up to such a force, an iron rod, may in fact be a reference to this battle as we ride forth with the Lord to conquer his enemies with him. The biblical record is unclear on this point, but it is definitely a defensible idea. But there's one more observation I want to make, and that is the finality and horror of this judgment. The beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, these men who were groomed by Satan and empowered by him to deceive the world in these final years before the Lord's return, they're captured. It's an intense word that is used for grabbing onto a person like you're going to put him in prison. It's used for catching fish, grabbing them. But there the Antichrist and the false prophet are thrown, it says, alive into the lake of fire. We're going to wait until we come to Revelation 20 to describe what this lake of fire actually is, this most abominable, dreadful place that burns with sulfur, it says, a place of unending, burning torment of decay and stench. But why does John say that they were thrown alive into the lake of fire? In fact, to be cast into the lake of fire is referred to in Revelation 20, the next chapter, as the second death. To say they were thrown alive into the lake of fire emphasizes the fact then that they are fully conscious of the pain and torment they are experiencing. And those who were not slain already in the battle are killed in an instant, it appears, by the sword of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Here, in the words of Shakespeare's Henry V, was a royal fellowship of death. Now, we look around at our world 
and it's business as usual. The sun is shining. It's a beautiful day outside. It's a nice green 10 acres that we can use here for our ministry. We're very thankful for that. We have our families and our work and our ministries and our pastimes and our plans. And all of what we're reading here seems so far away. I mean, is this really going to happen someday? That's exactly why Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 3, you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the command of the Lord and Savior through your apostle, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? That is, where is the fulfillment of it? I thought he was going to come. Where is it? Now, why will they actually scoff about the coming? Why will they mock it openly? I mean, think of what the scripture says is going to happen when the Lord returns. This is, this is horrifying in the right sense of that word. Why would they mock that, the power and glory and terrible judgment of the Lord? It's like mocking a shotgun pointed directly at your face. Why would you do such a thing? Only if you didn't think it was really loaded or that the trigger would never be pulled. These mockers are certain it's never going to happen because they say, for ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. It's been too long. Nothing's happened. Nothing's changed. Life is still going on. There's crime in the world. Governments rise and fall. There's wartime. There's peacetime. The political scene is ever-changing, and we're riveted on it sometimes. So Peter says in verses 5 through 7, you know, that's what people said a long time ago before the flood came. He says, For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Then Peter says the only difference is that they were waiting for a watery judgment, but we're waiting for a fiery judgment. By the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And then Peter says, don't be fooled by the passing of time. Don't be lulled into complacency. As if this scene just described for us in Revelation 19 is never going to happen. Because he says, don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is one day. This is a poetic way of saying that time does not impact God the way it impacts us. He does not measure time between promise and fulfillment the same way that we do. But if we take this expression literally, how long has it been since the Lord promised to return? Less than two days. So Peter assures us the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. In other words, it's not slowness you're seeing, it's patience you're seeing. Not wishing that any should perish. God does not want to bring the world to this judgment. But that all should reach repentance. 
But, Peter says, make no mistake, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And then he says, since all these things are then to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? In other words, knowing this is the end has an impact on how we live now. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter's focus here in the end is how we should be living because of the fact, the truth, that the Lord is coming. He's coming to save. He's coming to judge. It ought to impact our holiness now. It ought to impact our godliness now. It ought to impact our interests, what we love, what we care about now. Our plans, what we do with our lives. The reality of his coming should fuel our gospel ministry, our desire to share the good news of salvation through faith in Christ that saves us from the wrath to come. The reality of his coming should loosen our grip on the things of this world that are passing away and strengthen our desire for things above. It should cause us to be very thoughtful and prayerful about our relationship with Christ and whether we truly know him and desire him. The truth of the Lord's coming and the stark reality of judgment and the lake of fire, as terrible as that wrath appears, ought to have a sanctifying impact on our lives. In fact, we've been preparing to come before the Lord's table to observe the elements. I'm going to go directly this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if you'd like to turn there, because I think the Lord warns us to reflect on his coming as part of what we do when we gather around the table. We always read this passage when we come to the table. I want you to think of it in light of what we've seen in Revelation 19 this morning. Verse 23 says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we observe the Lord's table, as we will in a moment, we are identifying with, we're proclaiming ourselves to be one with the Lord. We are saying his death is our death and his resurrection is our resurrection. And our only hope for escape from sin and judgment and entrance into eternal life is what Christ has done for us. We are saying to the Lord and to one another, I'm in, that's who I am. And I'm not only claiming to be a believer, but I'm walking as a believer. We always look three directions. We look, we look uh, retrospectively. We look back at what Christ has done for us. And we look introspectively. We look at ourselves and we examine ourselves. And we look prospectively. We look ahead to his coming. We're always doing this when we come to the Lord's table. And this is serious business, so serious, in fact, that Paul gives a warning to those observing the table in which he references at the end of this passage. Did you ever realize that before? The, the, the final judgment we've just been reading about in Revelation 19. 
He says in verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. In other words, it's like you've, you've crucified Christ personally yourself. So he says, let a person examine himself or herself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. There's the word judgment. What kind of judgment is that? That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died, he says to the Corinthian church. I don't think we've had anybody die in our congregation, but they obviously had in theirs. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. There are three kinds of judgment here. First, the loving judgment or discipline of the Lord upon his wayward children. That's what the Lord does to us from time to time because he's nurturing us as his children. In fact, it's one of the reasons we know he loves us and that we belong to him, that, that he, he chastens us from time to time. But then there's another kind of judgment. It's mentioned in verse 31. We judge ourselves. That means we keep ourselves in check. We, we, don't, we don't go to a place where God has to come in and, and chasten us. We've already been chasing ourselves chastening ourselves. We make certain we're truly following the Lord. And all of that distinguishes us from the rest of the world that does not even know God and who runs from God or who hates God, whom he mentions in the last verse when he says, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. That's the final judgment of Revelation 19. And it ought to encourage us to embrace Christ. What we know is ahead, what we know God could start bringing about at any moment ought to have an impact on how we live right now. So as we gather around the table, let's thank the Lord for our salvation. But let's ask, also ask him to make what he says is coming a reality to us so that we make our choices in light of that reality. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And in a moment, I'm going to invite the deacons to come up to be able to begin passing out the elements of the table. But before they do, I'm going to ask us just to bow in silent prayer together. And I'll let you commune with the Lord. Let's thank him for our salvation. Let's ask him to build within us that grace of sanctification because of what he is warning us about in his word. And let's ask him to cleanse us, to sanctify us, that we might come in a worthy manner to the table this morning. Let's commune with the Lord silently, and I'll close in prayer in just a few moments.